This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, guys, welcome to the Full Blast podcast, and I'm excited to have the returning champion, who I'm going to make a huge apology to, Andrew Alexander, for part two. But first, let's just take care of a little bit of business. What do you say? Number one is Axe Wax. Axe Wax is all-natural, food-safe wax for your axe, for your handles, for your steel, for your wood, whatever it takes. Great stuff. I just put some on some uh, culinary knives, and I know that with that, it's food safe that I have no fears. So if you want, go get yourself some of that Axe Wax. It's great stuff. Uh, go to axewax.us. Use promo code FULLBLAST10 for 10% off your order. If you are in the UK, UKKnifesupplies.com has, uh, is taking Full Blast 10. If you're in the EU, knifematerial.at. Keith Colby's taking Full Blast 10. If you're in Australia, you got two choices. You can go Gamico, artisansupply.com.au, or Australia, NordicEdge.com.au. They're both taking Full Blast 10. I appreciate you guys. Go get yourself some of that Axe Wax and get the 10% off. Why not? Get a couple pucks. And get some, I'm wearing a sweatshirt right now. I love this sweatshirt. Uh, next is Total Boat. Total Boat. I'm going to hang out with the Total Boat guys at Maker Camp. Uh, TotalBoat.com. They make adhesives, paints, primers, and polishing, polishing compounds. They started making stuff for boaters and DIYers. And then they realized, hey, the Maker community could probably use this stuff too. Uh, they make great high-performance epoxy. I use their high-performance epoxy their, um, for handle scales. They have thick-set casting epoxy for all your little, you know, if you wanted to do handle scales with a hybrid material and, a, and whatever, or you want to do a pour or whatever that, that kind of stuff is, the tonal boat's for you. Uh, I know that guys like Keith Decent, Derek from Malden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, and Jimmy Dresser all using the thick set casting epoxy. They're all for, dorks. They're all dorks, but they're yeah. using the. They're, if, hey, if you're if you're using a dork, you get yourself <laughs> some of that Total Boat. And if you go to TotalBoat.com, you put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all of your orders. So go get yourself some of that Total Boat. I'm going to be hanging out with those guys at Maker Camp, and we're going to say hello. And I appreciate the support, and I appreciate the support of the, of the listeners, and especially Total Boat. Next is Trojan Horse Forge. They make the stable rail knife finishing vise. This thing is awesome. They are vices made in the heart of Texas. They're made by knife makers, so they know, understand what you need. You need something that's going to hold your knife while you're hand sanding. You need something that's going to hold your knife while you're finishing the handle, and you might want to move it around. So go get yourself the stable rail knife finishing vise from Trojan Horse Forge because that is the best one on the market. I have two. I love them. They come with rubber. They come with pins. They'll support your distal taper. They'll support your kukris, your curved knives, your uh, integral bolsters, everything. It's the best. And I get messages from guys who say, I didn't think I'd like it, and now I love it. So everyone's throwing away all their 2x4s, and they're getting rid of all their clamps, and they're sticking with the Trojan Horse Forge Stable rail knife finishing vice. You go to TrojanHorseForge.com, order one, and you put in the promo code Full Blast. You're going to get te- uh, you're going to get free shipping. You get free shipping in the United States. Definitely go check it out. They're having also some hammerins coming up. You should definitely fe- uh, follow them on Instagram, Trojan Horse Forge. Thank you so much, guys. It's always great talking with you, and uh, I appreciate your support. And last but not least, I spoke with I was uh, Maritime Knife Supplies. Lawrence Lake has been in New York all week and he's been to the Yankee game he went to the Yankee game he almost got to see I mean he almost got to see Aaron Judge hit this break the record Karen couldn't do it in in New York he went out to Charlie Palmer Steak this guy has been in New York Maritime Knife Supply he's been having a good time I think I'm going to see him at Maker Camp too Uh, Maritime Knife Supply 
ca for all your knife making needs belts abrasives seals kilns forges presses heat treating ovens anvils whatever you need to resupply or get started they have axe wax they're in canada but they ship to the united states with ease and you can take advantage of that exchange rate the steel selection is always growing and lawrence has just got a pile of new steel in all the time i know he got some special bars hex bars and Mareko momasi was saying that those are great for integral bolsters integral knives so go get yourself some of that maritime knife supply and if you get a pack of 10 abrasive belts you're going to get 10 percent off all of your order all of your order of the belts all of your order of the belts so go to the maritime knife supply.com see what the fuss is about they also have the tr maker equipment they also have all the doctor dr larens uh, must have book knife engineering and i want to thank Lawrence Lake over at Mar- Maritime Knife Supply. I look forward to meeting you. And uh, he's very generous, and he's very, he's very attuned to what knife makers need. So if you th- think that there's something that he should be providing, I'm sure you send him a message, you'll get it. Uh, so Maritime Knife Supply, many thanks. First things first, I want to make an apology to my guest. Andrew Alexander's back. He was here last week, and we had a technical error. And the technical error was they the... The, the platform we were going to use was going to shut down. And if I didn't end the show in time, it was going to lose the time we had. So I had to cut it short. And Andrew Alexander's back. He's gracious enough to hang out with me. And he's back. couple he's things back. just to get started. Go ahead. I have axe wax on my desk. Yeah. But one of the things that people don't realize you can use it for is chapstick. I... You know what's funny? It works funny. really good. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I had a guy who – I had a few guys who said, well, with Axe Wax, I heard you say it's all natural food safe, and I, I used it for hair pro- as a hair product. Totally, dude. And I said, well, I, I, I don't know. If, so I reached out to Noah at Axe Wax. I said, look, do you want me to make comments that people can use it for their hair? And he goes, well, it's – it's there's nothing in it that's bad for you, but because of the FDA, I can't really say it. Of course so I, not. I've tried not to. I've I've tried not to promote that. But at the same time, you're rubbing it all over your. You look good. Yeah, I'm a beautiful person. I don't know. You, if you are know a beautiful that. person. You are <laughs> I'm a beautiful just kidding, person. dude. I'm just kidding. You know, even though we had a short conversation last week, I got a ton of messages really enjoying the conversation. So good. We're gonna kick off where we started. Just one of the things I was thinking about. When last episode, now this is part two. So if you if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, what did they talk about the first time? Stop this one. Go to the one before, and then Andrew Alexander rides again, and and you can hear it. But one of the things that was interesting is before we were getting into the idea of the collector versus the buyer, we were talking about maybe maybe the pondering the idea of how anvils, blacksmithing tools were marketed. Uh, from the professional to the home user. Right. And I, I really started to think about how interesting that was because, I mean, like we were talking about before we started talking about it, you know, Little Giant, even thinking the Little Giant company was one of the first, you know, to, I would imagine, I'm going to ask you, you're the professional, tool companies that started branding their equipment with this almost like a slug line. Sure. So I think what you need to do is go back to when advertisement really started to take off. And that would have been uh, when the Blacksmith and Wheelwright magazine came out in the late 1800s. And when I, that's not when advertising started, but that's when people realizing, started to realize that advertising worked, right? 
And they would order things via Pony Express, meaning you would fill out a form that was in the back of the Blacksmith or Wheelwright magazine, and you would check mark the box of what you wanted, and the guy would take it literally on a, a, a wagon, right, to the, to the location wherever these things were stored or to the, the Blacksmith that was making these uh, anvils of the Ford shop, you know, make the transaction, and then the, the Pony Express would bring it back, right? So that was very primitive. That was a very primitive approach to advertising. But people would see in these wheelwright magazines, black and white, you know, advertisements for anvils, nails, horseshoes, you know, on and on and on. So I think advertising is really what helped to make that transition. Exactly. But And then the, the builders of these equipment started to realize maybe we need to have advertising be part of our product because if you look at we were talking about the richard postman book anvils in america and if you look at the names of the anvils the companies of the anvils and you know better than i do you're an expert the names i mean if you if you an average person who wasn't into blacksmithing wouldn't understand what hey button was sure it was a guy's you name know, it was a guy's name so at what you ever seen a picture did, of him no dude Tell great me. very very interesting picture of him are you digging your ass no see this is the reason why i told you i don't do the thing no this is perfect pocket literally jeff just stuck his hand into his asshole no 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 i didn't (laughs) okay so going back to the the video i was getting my wallet in my pocket he was annoying me while i was sitting listening to you you should always carry your wallet in your front pocket so your back never hurts i'm from new york we don't do that so listen so so so, so, tell me about uh hey bud see there's a one very majestic picture of him he's got like this flat a feather in his hat and he's got almost like those uh uh what are those pants that golfers wear called knickers or something like that that are kind of poofy from the waist to the knee? Like jodhpurs? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And it just doesn't look like what you would think this guy who manufactures anvils would look like. He looked like a, a more of royalty or something of that yeah. nature. I yeah. love the picture. I'll send it to you. So tell me more about it. I mean, so Hey Buttons, he's wearing the crazy clothes and stuff like that. I would think based on what we – what looking at the Richard Postman book anvils in America, you're not seeing as much, you're not seeing as much. It's taking a while before these companies are starting to realize how important anvil advertisement is to their selling of their tools. Sure. But then you also need to look at when these, uh, uh, these companies were created as well, you know, cause that, that would play a factor into like where, where along the line of when advertising was, uh, notable, or people were seeing a, uh, an ROI with their uh, advertising dollars. What's an ROI? A return on investment. Okay. Like, at what point did that company jump into the, you know, like, intergalactic web of of advertising, so to speak? Hmm. So I think that has something to do with it. Uh, all of them really adver- – the advertising was important, but I think all of them really sold themselves. An anvil is something that sells itself, Right. It's it, especially back then. It was it was a necessity for that guy out on a farm. He couldn't live without it. He wasn't going to Home Depot. He wasn't going to True Value Hardware or whatever Jibos or whatever all these you know uh, ranch stores, farm ranch stores are now. Tractor Supply and all that <clears throat> that didn't exist. But there was definitely <laughs> a change where companies said, "All right, we've sold enough anvils to professional blacksmiths." We need to focus on a different demographic. I, I disagree. I think it, it all kind of molds together at some point. The, you, 
you, you're not selling to one and not the other, right? Okay. You're selling to all of them, right? Right. But in a town, there was like one main, you know, forging shop, right? So you definitely want to sell an anvil to that person, to that, to that shop. Right. This, and I'm talking about way back. We're talking about way back. What would you but, say way back is around? I'm, I'm for America. Yeah. For America, I would say 1800s. Okay. Other countries earlier than that, but. For us, like really old stuff in the United States is like 1850, right? Whereas if you go over to the UK or anything like that, like really old stuff is 1500s. Right. You know, it's just a different deal. So, I mean, anybody that sells anything is going to market to everybody, right? Comfortably, you could say that. If I sell anvils, I'm going to try to get the professional and non-professional to buy my anvils. If it's something that I feel like they could use. Now, I'm not going to get, if I'm selling anvils, I'm not going to advertise, hey, you know, I'm selling, you know, pink dresses, right? But, I mean, at the same time, I mean, there, it's, see, I almost feel like there's this, like, there was, like, this moment where, like, in terms of how crafts change and how crafts become something like, you know, I can understand that, you know, most uh, early Americans had axes and they had saws. And they had stuff because there was so much stuff they had to do on their own. But I'm just wondering with the blacksmithing stuff, at what point are your average settlers or your average homeowners or farm owners starting to say, you know what, I cannot keep going to the guy in the, I can't keep going to the guy in the two towns away to get something made. Maybe I should think about investing in getting one of these things. And then all of a sudden, how do you realize where, at what point do you realize how can I get these things anyway? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I think maybe an easier way to look at it is if we fast forward to like the 1970s, when the artist blacksmith association type stuff was created, what is it or how would you market your product if you were selling anvils at that point from what was previously a dying craft that really only professionals did to now a hobbyist or to an artist that is going to use the same tool, but in a different form. I, I start, I've been thinking a lot lately and I've been talking to a lot of guys in terms of the concept of the blacksmithing being a relatively new recreational uh, use of industrial equipment recreationally. Um, in, within the past 50 some odd years, something like that. And I'm starting to wonder if it's not true. I, for a long time, I was just like, I got something. This is it. This is a new, this is the new idea. This is a brand new thing. And now we need, there's never really been edu- you know, education for the masses. And now is the, been the golden age, but I'm starting to think about it now talking to you and, and looking at anvils and looking at hammers. I feel like maybe this recreational thing has always been there. Totally. Totally. It just, you know, you're saying it's been there, but they ha- didn't have the exposure that it right. could have. Like, you know, like I, I'm not, I can't get, o- I can't get over the idea that somebody said, we're going to come up with a, a, a mechanical power hammer company and we're going to make them that a guy can have in his barn. And we're going to name it something like that. You know what it is as soon as you read it. Little giant. Sure. I think what they did back then was they worked backwards. They had the farm. The farm was established. The farm needed 
these tools, say like plows or whatever, to produce the crops? And then how do you manage those plows and things of that nature when they break? Right. What do you do then? Well, you take it to the guy two towns over or you fix it yourself, right? And so that's why there's five different, six different size little giants. The guy that's got his farm is, doesn't have a 250-pound little giant. He's got a 25-pound, right? How do you think that they figured this out back in the day? How did the little giant power company, how power hammer company figured out that there was this need? And I just, the whole concept of the story of how they kind of developed. And I mean, it's fascinating. The mind works in, in mysterious ways. Like if you're hungry, what do you do? You go but eat. I mean, so if you, think, if you, if you have a, 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 oh Jesus. If you have a necessity for, a repair or something of that nature, you're going to create something that can help you do that. Right. But there's such little information. How do you, it's boots on the ground information. You know, how do you get, how did it, does it take generations of the little giant power hammer company to like work it out or how do they get the met and how do you, you don't get instant metrics back in the 1700s, 1800s. You, so you, you, Let's think about that. Like, just think about the components of a hammer, right? It's okay. not just one thing. So it's cast. How did they come up with this casting and, and all that? It was mathematical equations. It was using your head. It wasn't computers. It was not, uh, you know, done digitally. It was sitting down with a calculator and a pencil and a paper, parchment paper, right? Real parchment paper and, and maybe an ink pen, a real ink pen. And you figured the shit out. How much loss are we going to get when we pour this? How much is it going to shrink? How much? There was probably a ton of trial and error, but they had to go through like very laborious steps to get to that finished product. And yes, the evolution of Little Giant is crazy. I have hammers here that are some of their original hammers that are the biggest pieces of shit you've ever seen in your life. Like literally pieces of shit. But I love them because it shows what they started with and where they are now. I, I've made this mention before. Coal Ironworks. When they started out, terrible, 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 terrible welds. If you look at the welds on some of their original pieces of, of machinery, you, I just look at them and go, how did that pass inspection? You know, you got welds that drift off one way and the other way and, you know, tons of porosity and all kinds of shit, like crazy, right? So you can't say that somebody started and they were the best that day, right? You got to be willing to grow with these people. And that's why... Companies offer warranties and companies offer a guarantee and all that. Like, I guarantee this will work. If it doesn't, we'll make it right. Then you have to just be flexible that, that they'll follow through if it doesn't. That's, that's, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's the thing with knife makers. Knife makers, you know, they only know what they know at that moment. And as they continue making knives, they get better and better and better. So the big gripe, not gripe, but like the big regret I hear from a lot of knife makers is my first 10 knives were terrible. But sure. I sold them, and I wish I could get them back. Sure. But I try to say, I try to make the point of like, look, that was the best you could do at that time, and obviously you would hope to grow as you're developing. And it's like, but it, it, it's fascinating that you say that about Little Giant. I just wonder. I just feel like in my mind, and I said this to you two episodes ago. I think that like the Little Giant story would be like Deadwood, a fascinating like TV show like Deadwood. Sure. Like, I just can't figure this. I can't figure any of it out. 
You know, yeah, who, I mean, who the, has the mind to say we can? We're gonna we're gonna put little giant on the name of these machines. We're gonna people are gonna know them when they see them. They're gonna be perfect in the advertisements, and we're gonna sell them to the little guys. We're not gonna just sell them to like fabrication shops. Sure, I, I will tell you this: the complexity of a little giant power hammer is not that. It's not that complex. At the time when they were created, there was other people making stuff that was way more heavily engineered than those little giant power hammers. So, you know, who came first? What do you mean? In the power hammer, in the in the power hammer for consumption, what was the the history of the mechanical hammer? Oh, that's a good question. There was over three hundred and fifty hammer mechanical hammer manufacturers in the United States alone. Wow. If you get that book pounding out the profits and thumb through there and see how many different styles of power hammers and stuff there were, it's mind blowing. And the question I have is where did they all go? Because yeah. in the grand scheme of things, Little Giant didn't really make that many hammers. 19,000 is what they projected total from uh, 1895 to uh, 1979 when they made their last one. 19,000. That's, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's nothing, and you still hear Little Giant, Little Giant, Little that's, Giant. It's like crazy. That's the most recognizable old power hammer company in the United States. Truly. But there are other ones that are far superior, far superior. You look at the style of a Baudry, clutch-driven, mechanical power hammer, far superior to the Little Giant. And that's why they're more expensive. People have recognized that. A Baudry is an industrial forging hammer at any size, and they made them all from little all the way to big. And Little Giant is not an industrial forging hammer until you get into, like, the 250 to 500 range. And even at that, it's not as good of an industrial forging hammer as, say, the Baudry is. So do you think that it was, like, hype? What, how we would refer to, like, the... Uh, the, uh, I mean, what we're saying, you talk about, so, uh, when somebody says, I wish I had a little giant, you know what they're talking about. Yeah, totally. You know? Unless it's, they're one a little giant. Well, yes, but I mean, <laughs> you know, generally speaking, I, I would imagine that after what you're saying, that maybe their advertisement outweighed the, fu- the final outcome of what they were making. Advertisement or the salesman, the traveling salesman that was going on. Maybe one of the three kids... One of the three boys uh, was a great traveling salesman. Maybe he had, uh, right behind me, right over there, is one of 13 salesman sample little giants that were ever made. Maybe one, maybe that one was in his car or in his wagon or whatever, and he traveled all around, and maybe he was this sexy Fabio-looking dude, and all the women goo-gooed and goggled over him, and he... He uh, made a great connection with all the, the, the people that were forging, whether they were men and women, and... Uh, and it just worked out great, yeah. you know. I, you know, it all is fascinating, and, and and it makes me just wonder about just tools in general. Is at what point did tool companies and any tool company, not just you know forging hammers and stuff like that, at what point are are tool manufacturers starting to realize, hey, listen, we need to build business by putting a little bit of razzle dazzle in our product. Like out of the name or, I mean, who's, I mean, how did that, you think that started? I have no idea. I think people realize that marketing works, right? Advertising works. And it, if you're the best, your product's going to get 
get talked about. There's a, there is another book called Buzz Marketing that you should read. It's a more modern book, of course, but uh, it talks about how to create buzz about your product without ever spending any money doing so. This all makes is it very interesting because it, it just makes it's just a very um, it's interesting because the idea that there were catalogs out and Little Giant got on the got on the you know in the catalogs. And it was this way to communicate what you're doing, to build your brand. There's something this morning I was listening to. Howard Stern was interviewing um, Jan Winter of Rolling Stone. And they were talking about the fact that Rolling Stone magazine, which was considered one of the greatest magazines of all time, is really, you know, like all things that used to be, the Internet is taking over. And the Internet is now making readership of magazines. You know, hardly any magazines are, like, holding, holding on because people just don't buy magazines. Right. And what's interesting is, is there's so many people who say, well, you know, it's important to be in magazines and this, the Internet stuff doesn't really make a difference and, huh. and, and, and the Internet stuff doesn't matter. And the volume of, you know, the classic you know, journalism of magazines and magazines. And we start to, you know, poo-poo these new ideas. And I was I was doing a little research before he came on, and I was looking at v- viewers of uh, took a, p- a popular show, Dancing with the Stars. You've heard of this is like an American show. Maybe it's in other countries, but Dancing with the Stars was very popular for quite some time. Their viewership for the final finale of that show, which is a popular show, was like four was five point three million views. That's a lot. Ben Snoor p- punched a hole in a hammer on Instagram and got over 10 million views. Sure. So it just makes you wonder how these advertising things, how things change and how we view things. I, I think there's a, there is a dynamic to that that we'll never understand because I think it is an evolving door, a revolving door, meaning these algorithms and stuff that push the view count and all that, I think are highly manipulated. Highly manipulated. Really? Oh, they have to be. But you, the, that not the algorithm that they get them in front of people's faces? Or it's maybe not, like not. Robotic views. Or maybe not. Huh. You know, I think about Instagram. You know, I sell a lot of stuff through Instagram, but they, there's no feed that they take from me for that. And maybe they get in a bad mood one day and they're like, dude, I'm tired of him making all this money or selling all this stuff. I'm going to just, you know, decrease the percentage of, of the uh, – people that he's stuff is exposed to if that that has to be going on right i'm sure but it it brings me back to those early magazines with the advertisements of the drawn uh little giants where regardless of the final product you are still seeing you're getting the views more than we were saying that little giant wasn't the best mechanical hammer out there not at all but it was the most the most it's the most it's clearly one of the more recognizable ones sure and and the the other thing that you may want to think about with that is that little giant is the one that has lasted the longest in the mechanical hammer market right if it was not for sid sudemeyer little giant would have been forgot about a long time ago well tell him what happened he he bought it from uh, the foundry and kept it going. He realized that there was still a need for, you know, or, or a business that could still be ex- in existence revolving around the parts of these hammers. Not about the not about the production of them new, right? It was about the parts. He was at that foundry and he he saw all this massive amount of parts and things that they had still in stock and he made a deal to to buy the company. 
right? And he operated it for a long time until he then outsourced the parts somewhere else as they kind of depleted the inventory. And then that company then sold it recently back to Sid and Sid owner financed it to another guy. So it, the point is that Little Giant has not gone out of business and all the other ones have. Huh. So where, where do you where do you get parts for Little Giant? You gotta just be you gotta know or no? You go on LittleGiant.com and get them. I mean, if they have them, they're, they're, this new acquisition, this new sale of the company has created some hurdles for them. Like there was a machine shop that owned Little Giant before, and when they sold it back to Sid and then Sid uh, owner finance it to one of his buddies, they did not buy the machines that went with the machine shop. So everything now has to be outsourced. That sadly, Little Giant is running itself into the ground at the moment, hmm. right? Because they don't have the inventory they used to have, and the prices have gone up substantially, like everything else. But it makes it hard for the people that are buying these machines to keep up with them properly, right? If you if a set of dies cost three hundred fifty bucks and now they're twelve hundred. That's a that's a huge price jump, right? Right. And notoriously, uh, people that are working with their hands and all that don't have like an excess of money just to buy whatever, right? You don't see tons of people like multimillionaires that are out there forging. There are some, yes, but generally, there's not like millionaires are not the ones that are forging, right? See what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so I'm, I mean, it just seems as though it's almost as if, I mean, I think you and I have talked about this, that like the, the, there hasn't been more of a demand for homeowners to have power hammers like there is now. Totally. Because it's just the viewing. What's going what's gonna to, what would it take for someone to step in and bring Little Giant back? Because you know. That if somebody like invested in Little Giant and they started making hammers again, their just their brand, their history, their collectability would be equal to, if not greater than their originally when they started. The way that a Little Giant hammer is made is cost prohibitive for today's market, right? Casting, foraging, all that stuff is very, very expensive. To be able to sell a new Little Giant hammer today would cost double, triple what it would what you think it would cost, right? So I think that the I think the business behind that is has a cap on it. I don't think that Little Giant can reinvent itself today in a way that would make make profitability a, a you know a for sure thing. What's the sticking point? The bodies, the cast bodies. The whole aspect of it. I mean, even after you get the hammer, the shipping, you know, let's say you buy a 100-pound little giant, right, or a 50-pound right. little giant. You go 1,800 pounds for a 50-pounder, 50, 50 3,800 pounds for a 100-pounder, 5,000, 6,000 pounds for a 250. Shipping that kind of weight is expensive, right? Even if you have a, a freight contract somewhere or delivery service, those kind of weights are expensive, and then how are you going to unload it? So let's just play this out. You buy, I'm a little giant. You buy a 250 from me, right? Okay. And in today's world, it's going to cost probably $50,000 brand new. You think so? Oh, absolutely. For a 250-pound for a little giant? Yeah, dude. Listen, okay. just as a side note, 
I always put Baldor motors on these 25-pound little giants. I use Baldors on all of them, typically. A, a one-horsepower Baldor motor, farm duty, just a standard Baldor motor, used to cost me 350 bucks. They're $1,100 now. Jesus. So do the math. Everything is just inflated like crazy. And the thing is, is the prices are not coming down. So, but let's play this out. You buy a 250 from me. I can load it. I have the equipment and all that stuff. We put it on an 18-wheeler. It shows up to your place. How do you unload it? You have to rent a forklift. You've got to rent a SkyTrack. You've got to rent a, a, a rotator to come in and lift it off. That's going to cost you 500 bucks, 800 bucks, maybe 1100 bucks, whatever. Then you've got to get it inside your building. You've got to set it up. You've got to pour the concrete slab, da-da-da-da-da. This fifty grand is now $75,000, right? It just doesn't make sense for a hobbyist to spend that kind of money. But you see hobbyists with old hammers. Absolutely. But you're saying new hammers. I'm just I mean I'm just wondering. I mean it just makes sense to it just seems to me that as though that there is the demand is there and it's just a question of figuring out how it can be done. It's being done in China. Right. With Anyangs. Anyang. And they're not bad hammers. I've never no. said they were bad hammers. Great hammers, great control. That I could go on. James Johnson offers amazing customer service. Yeah. Take him out of the equation. What happens? Take little uh take Anyang out of the equation. What happens? There's not another one. Right? Huh. There are the, the fake Anyangs that are out there. What are they? STIs or whatever? They're but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, there's a, essentially what goes on in China is Anyang's not made under one roof. Not even close. It's subbed out all over town. This guy does this. That guy does that. that blah, 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 blah. Right. Well, and when you have that and you have a crossover, it just takes that one guy getting pissed off to go, hmm, those are the blueprints for that thing. I think I'll just leave this company and take those with me today. Boom. Right. Then they do that, and they use those same companies because those same companies don't have any loyalty to the brand Anyang. They're making money. They're in the they're in the business to make money, so they just cross out the the top of the uh, thing that says Anyang and put on their STI, right? And they make the same thing and sell it for a third of the price. Once again, how when are we going to have an American power hammer company? You tell me. Because I mean, they're not selling. I mean, obviously, James Johnson's selling all those uh, the An Yangs in the United States. They're not going. They're not going all over China. Sure, well, I'm so sure there the, are plenty in China. Plenty, I know, but not to the value. I would. Yes, of course. I think I, he was on Jesse's and Rick's podcast, and he said that it's just what they're do. What they're bringing over here is a fraction of what An Yang is sure. doing in, abroad. It's just. It just. See, I'm. I'm fascinated by the fact that. There is a never been more demand for anvils. There's never been more demand, and you could probably attest to this. There's never been more demand. I know hammer makers are, can't make hammers fast enough. I know that there are people are seeing and they're uh, they're consuming blacksmithing on a level that is has never been seen before in terms of the accessibility to the information. And I just wonder when at some point someone's going to step up and say we can do this. I there's I, not anyone that I know of right now that is mass producing power hammers, mechanical I mean, power hammers. People are making clay Spencer power hammer, uh, tire hammers. The tire hammer game is. I have no interest in talking about that. Okay. Zero. There I think. You go. I mean, I think 
those are fine, but I think they're dangerous. Yeah. They're all dangerous. But when you have – are those Clay Spencer tire hammers, are they engineered, or is this just an idea that they implemented and it works? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I can't speak to that, but I know that, you know, I have a tire hammer. Right. And I had to re-weld the whole thing up. Okay, so my and, point exactly. And I had to put on, like, safety features, cause, and I had to keep my, I have to keep my eye on it because there are certain things about it that scare the shit out of me. Right. It's not an engineered hammer. It's an idea right. that got implemented, and people utilize it because it's cheap. Right? It's cheap. In the grand scheme of things, what are they, $3,500? Four grand? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. That's an entry-level hammer. And so you get what you pay for. So what's the next step? And now, obviously, now here's the great thing about Coal Ironworks, is they figured out a way to grow, and people are buying Coal Ironworks, and then they, when they're posting, they're making their Damascus. You see Coal Ironworks, and you got their. I mean, they're making their. They're building and they're growing and they're getting better and they're building and they're growing. And the other thing is with the with the hydraulic press, there's no foot pad. There's no you can roll the motherfucker around. Yep. You can you can you know there's no foot pad. You can roll it around. They're relatively. I it seems as though they're easy to ship and take off because you you just wheel them off the truck. Could be. I've never received one, but it, that company has grown so much since it's you know since its beginning. They're, the original owners don't own that company anymore. Another company does. They sold, right? So I, don't, I have no idea. Yeah, they sold to a bigger outfit, and that's why they can grow. They can put more money into what they're doing. It's no longer that is no longer a mom and pop type business. That's a big business that's backed by a bigger business, right? I looked at. Uh, I talked to them when I was in Ohio the other day, and I think they. They were giving me some. I was asking them what their sales were, and I, I'm not going to divulge that because yeah. I don't. You know, it's not my business. Of course, but, of course. it's not my business to share that. But they're doing good. They're doing good. Right? Huh? Well, I mean, it's it makes sense. I mean, you know, once again, they're feeding a need. Totally. So there is uh, Sid Sudermeyer and I are good friends, and one time he he had his daughter print off on just regular copy paper this this some pictures of a power hammer that he took pictures of when he was at an event that he wanted me to see. And of course this was before our phones where we could just do it in five seconds. Right. And I got to looking at it and I was totally intrigued by it. It is an all steel power hammer replicated and designed by a little giant, but it's a bolt together. So you essentially water jet cut all these pieces and you bolt it up and you go for it. That to me and it was engineered. That, to me, is something that I think people could get behind. Something that you can buy, that you can put together, that works great. It has, it had a, it has tons of great components to it. And so I asked Sid. I was like, Sid, what's the deal? He goes, this guy made one, and he is not going to make another one. He just wanted to show that it could be done. So you could have the file, an engineered set of files, and then that way you could buy the files and then take it to your water jet guy, have all the parts cut, and then you're putting it together yourself. Yeah, or you could create a company around that, you know. That's the next step. Yeah, so you get this pallet that shows up to your business or your home, and it's assembly required. Hmm. Which is what everyone is used to now anyway. Yeah, but I think you'll – I think – 
you know, so what, what you got to ask yourself, what are the downfalls to something like that? You know, is rigidity, strength, all that a downfall? I don't know. Maybe not if you use the right stuff. But this, this, I'll send you pictures of it. It's super badass. And, but at the same time, it's like it's almost a liability because you can't guarantee whoever's putting it together is going through the the safety steps that a company would do. Absolutely. Building and sending out the door. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes it tough. Yeah. I remember the first time you were on the Blacksmith's Pub with Jesse and and, uh, and Rick Barter, you were talking about – when you restore hammers, the one thing that you find a lot is a lot of times when you're buying old hammers, when you're going through the restoration process, you see that a lot of people hide flaws. Totally. That was something that was really kind of caught my eye that you've bought hammers in the past and when you strip them down, all of a sudden where there was a giant crack, there's filled with Bondo. Totally. Tell me about the restoration process and how kind of terrifying it can be. It, every hammer, and I've done close to 200 of them, every hammer produces another set of challenges. None the same. Because everybody interpreted a repair in their own way, especially in that time frame. One thing that I see more than anything is this, like, scrap metal pieces bolted to the sow blocks to try to keep it from cracking. Right, like a, like a, like a splint, like a... Uh splint yes it's ridiculous the the way that those hammers are set up the dies that sit in the sow block have have a dovetail and the dovetail gets wedged into the frame of the hammer right and then when the dies hit together they're not supposed the, the the lower die is not supposed to make contact with the frame of the hammer meaning the sow block and over time that repetitive beating causes that that casting to to compact and compress down ultimately the edge of the top of the bottom die gets rested on the frame of the hammer where it's not supposed to be and when it don't, it's only going to take so much of that before it cracks right? right so what's the fix to that well just get a, a shim and go under the die to raise it up a little bit and you don't have these problems right so i see that that's like probably the universally the biggest repair that I see. And everyone's interpretation of that is different. Drilled and tapped. I mean, welded, scabbard, shafts, like, squeezed around it. It's ridiculous. Could you, you know, approximate that as being the same thing as seeing some sway in an anvil? Yeah, but two different things. The sway in the anvil really comes from the, the softness of the wrought iron that was used in the composition of that anvil, Right. But this but in is a power hammer. You're you're getting the same, you know, downward force totally. that's ultimately breaking. Yes, breaking the instead of there being sway, there's no there's no softness in the in the in the body of the hammer, and you end up break cracking it. Right. Yeah, and it happens a lot. And so the, you know, there's several ways you can fix that, but that that's that's a, that's a one I see a lot. You always see people's interpretation of linkage arms and toggle arms and bushings and pins and like the pins that hold all that together and springs and it's it's hilarious actually but at the same time it's like i i I remember you said that you take that very seriously and that's the reason why you never paint the hammers that you sell yeah i have started painting them though because people want them painted but people now know that i i don't i don't do things half-ass so 
they're not worried about that. I just I don't want what I see on my end to be a reflection of what someone's getting, right? Yeah. I don't want what I'm getting in to look like shit and then me paint over it and it still be shit. That's what ham- happened with my ha- the hammer I got. Which, your I tire hammer. hammer. I had it built and, you know, there was things and I, and I ended up having to say to the guy, look, this, I have a, other blacksmiths coming in here that, I, that this represents me. Talk, like, this, totally. the, the build of this thing represents me too. And I said, it represents you. And it was like a come to Jesus moment with this guy. And I was just like, look, dude, I, I kind of expected more. Like I expected more, you know, precision, you know, and, and I think it, I get, I get wor- I think about like restoration in general. Like you, we were talking before the last episode, you were, you were going to talk about the user versus the collector. And one thing that kind of gets me nervous is especially because, you know, young people are getting into blacksmith and getting into forging, getting into making in general, and then they buy old tools and then they're psyched because it looks beautiful in their shop and there's some classic qualities to it. And, and I don't know anything about like mills and bridge ports and all that. I don't know that people use words like, you know, bridge ports because they, they, they want part of this history in their shop. I get worried about restoration because I'm not 100% sure people can understand the little things that in the tool that they just bought that they might really hurt them. Yeah, totally. You're talking about if they don't do it right, if the restoration is not done or correctly. Or they don't even know. Like there are things like, like example, like your interview when you were on Blacksmith's Pub and you said that people bondo up, they, they bondo up a crack and then they paint it and no one wouldn't, if you just buy it and start running it, you wouldn't know. Right. Yeah, that's scary. So scary. That's why you have to, that's why you need to buy from a reputable source, right? Somebody that would stand behind it. So how many hammers, How I mean, to talk, bring me back into, I mean, we've talked before about your starting and buying and stuff like that. What's your daily, I mean, you buy hammers and you find stuff and you're always on the move. You always know where you're going. What would be, like, what are you doing this week? Uh, this week I'm not doing much. I'm going to be in the, the in and around my shop all week because I'll be gone all next week. <laughs> uh, what are you going to be doing next I, week? I'm actually taking the wife on vacation next week. So, oh, But oh. typically I would be gone. You know, if I'm gone one week out of the month, it's it's out there trying to find the next, you know, cool thing, the next and you're hammer. Just keeping your, and you're keeping your, your options open. You've got your fingers in the, on the pulse. You kind of know. Are there some things coming down the line that you are excited about? Oh, yeah, always. There's always things out there that I'm excited about. And a lot of what I do is all about timing, right? And what I've learned in the 20-plus years I've been doing this is to be patient. Things will happen the way they're going to happen, right? And I don't let I, – I, I always let the business side lead me and not the enthusiasm side, because if I do that, I'll go broke, right? Just because right. I'll buy whatever. Uh, and I try to help educate along the way. Like recently, a guy offered me an anvil collection. It's posted online right now. He offered it to me, and he, he, he acted like he was my best friend. I don't even know who this guy is. And he sent me, I said, hey, I, you know, I'll need pictures and all that. And I really, I do appreciate these opportunities. But he offered them to me at prices that I couldn't even resell them for, not even close. It was like $65,000 for 40 anvils, okay? And I, and I tried to, to tell him that. And he kept saying, well, just make me an offer. Just make me an offer. And he's, he was actually representing this widow. And I go, I'm not going to make you an offer because I think you've set false expectations for this widow 
by telling her that you can get $64,000 for these anvils, it's not going to happen. Whether I buy them or whoever, it, it's not going to happen. So he got a little butt hurt and uh, posted them on Facebook Marketplace for $49,000. You know, I don't get mad about that. That was a learning experience for me and him. You know, it was an opportunity for me to grow and for him to grow. And, hey, all is good at the end of the day. The idea behind the collector and the user is very interesting. Um, recently, and without getting too deep into it, uh, I made knives with a guy of chef, and he had passed away a number of years ago. And um, one, I made a set of knives. I made a number of set of knives, and then as soon as my friend had passed away, we just got rid of the – we I, we made the decision – that we are retiring the designs. In my opinion, I'm not doing collaboration with a friend of mine who died. I just, if there's something about it, if I, if I can't hang my hat on, I can hang my hat on a lot of things, but I don't need to make money off the, of, off the, the death of a friend of mine, which people could me could make all the different ideas you want. I just made the decision. I just don't want to do it out of, you know, respect and love for the guy who's helped me. So one of the, so some recently a guy who had bought one of the knives decided to he let me know that he was going to post it and sell it. And I and I I went on to the post. And what he was offering was like five times five times? No. Six 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 times what he paid for it, which I thought was like <laughs> I mean I was like stupefied. To the point where I was just like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to help this guy. I felt like it was a money grab, and I felt weird about it. Felt weird about it, but at the same time, I was just like, this is his. He bought this knife. He can do whatever the fuck he wants with it. He ain't going to get it. I have I know, talked to a lot of other knife makers who also have you know problems, but the, the idea of the commoditization of the things that they're making. How, talking about the user versus the collector, what is your thoughts on it? I, I would like to know what is your hang-up with that. Because this is America, and free enterprises stands loud and clear. And it's, so it's, is the fact that you sold that at an unvalued price bothering you, or is the fact that someone's profiting that much money? It doesn't matter what someone paid for something, ever. Never matters. I don't care if you pay a dollar for something. It's the market value. If that guy's overpricing it for the market, of course it's not going to sell. But if he makes a profit from what you sold it to him for, you got to be happy for him. I am. I have. I love. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a dyed in the wool. Lo- I think capitalism is fantastic. And if it wasn't for capitalism, I wouldn't be able to do this. I. I guess when it comes to something that you would consider. It's hard for me who I spent time as a sculptor and I've been involved with galleries who basically were pimps and I felt like I was being used to a certain degree. I guess I have a little bit of a feeling of, uh, yeah, yes. I didn't say anything to him. I didn't light him up. I didn't say you're overcharging. I didn't say a word. The only thing I did was I, I, ch- I helped him change his wording because he had written some things that were incorrect. Sure. Yeah, I'm a master, master bladesmith. And then he, he had a lot of details that were wrong. And I felt like, well, I don't have to tell him I'm not psyched about this, but I do have to tell him that he's got this. I'm not a master bladesmith, and this is these details are incorrect. And I just sent him a message saying, "Look, here's it is. I don't have a problem with him making money off of something I did. I don't have a money. I don't have a problem with him making money more money off of my stuff than he did. God bless him. I guess it was more along the lines of this commoditiz, you know, over commoditization of something that I don't believe." 
the value is there. And maybe trying to hoodwink someone over thinking that's that I feel that that's the correct value. Yeah, but that's not you're you're not the one doing that. Even though it has no. your name on it, it has nothing no. to do with you. No, it has nothing. That's the thing. I that my final thought was, and as, God bless him. I hope he gets it. Yeah. I hope he gets whatever he wants. And in my mind, in my heart, I'm thinking he's ripping somebody off. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I made it. It's not like I found. It's not like I found something of value here's a good example is i tell you what uh, aaron judge just hit the uh, 61st uh, home run ball uh he tied roger maris for the most home runs hit in a season in the american league um and he did it in ball in toronto everyone you cannot get seats in yankee stadium or any yankee game from now on in the outfield which is usually like the bleachers sure you can get them no problem now everyone's got their baseball mitts out because they know they want to catch a ball. That, that next ball, because three, they're saying it could be worth three million dollars. Okay, these poor sons of bitches. If you can watch the watch the replay, these guys out in in, in Toronto, it ju- it went out. It was to tie the Roger Maris. You could see the guy reaching out. It just clipped his glove and went right into the bullpen. Oh. And he just looks like I just had three million dollars yeah. just slip out of my hands. Yeah. It is it is interesting how we perceive value. Sure. And that that's a that's a game of Russian roulette. I mean, the likelihood of yeah. of you there's one of those baseballs, right? Right. Right. And they and they actually they they when Aaron Judge comes up, they switch the balls out to authenticate them. Really? And then what happens is the Yankees try to negotiate to get that ball back. Of course. And then there are some people who are just like, "Hold it." Hold the ball. You can you go bring it to Sotheby's. Change your life. Three million dollars, or at one point it was a quarter million dollars, and now they're saying it's you know the ne- the next one's maybe worth three million dollars. And then the Yankees got to go in there. They got to be able to authenticate the ball. They know which ball it was that the you know the um, the umpire gives it to the catcher. The catcher you, they know what ball's being thrown. Yeah. So they can authenticate it. You know, walking out with it. Albert Pujols just won the um he got he got on seven hundred uh, home runs. And the guy who caught the 700th home run walked out. He says, "You can't have it back. This is mine. Yeah. This is mine now." Because it's because it's like, and then the question of perceived value and stuff like that. With anvils and stuff like that, it's interesting to me because you end up getting these prices. That is it the value, or can you use it? Is it is it a good anvil because it's easy to use? Is it, it got no chips? It's got no sway. It's in great condition. Is that the value, or because of the rarity, is it the value? And then what you do with it? Yeah. So there, there's there are two thought processes there. Like, okay, so I own Richard Postman's Anvil Collection out of Anvils in America, and it's not for sale. It's not going to be for sale in any any near time, unless somebody makes me a crazy offer. I would probably entertain it because I'm a businessman. Right. But those anvils are the most historically significant anvils in the world because of what they represent there's a 552 page book or 553 page book that each one of these is documented in outside of that collection anvils take a different value in the market okay that's one collection and that would be true if they were yours or whoever's those anvils are very historically significant because they were used to create the Anvil Bible, right? But it, every other Anvil needs to be valued on its the maker, the condition, 
the size, the rebound, those are the main aspects of it. You know, when you get into the collector market, then they're looking at like the badging, the name on the side. How well can you see it? Does it have a serial number? Where does it fall in the production of this company, the evolution of the production of this company? How was it made? All that kind of stuff. But it, in, in general, if you are just looking for a good user anvil, it doesn't matter what it is. Where, you know, just get the best one you can afford is what I always say. Tell me more about the Richard Postman. How many anvils are in that collection? Mm, over 200. Oh, my God. Yeah. And where are they? They're right here in my office. And what do you do to preserve? Do you do anything to preserve them? Oh, they stay in a climate-controlled building. Really? Oh, yeah. They are literally in my office. There's Where I'm sitting right now is my office, and there's a ton of ambles in here, and then the next room over has 88,000 pounds of ambles on the floor and on shelves. 88,000 pounds. So much much weight on the floor in there that the floating slab in this building is – slowly sinking over there which i think is so fantastic you, so is, do you have to do anything about that or? at some point maybe oh my god so do you have them rubbed up with wd-40 or oh oh i have so i have some people that help me keep this my building clean and they just use microfiber towels to wipe them off like once a month or so just to get the dust off wow what is the, what does dust do to an animal? nothing Okay. It just makes it look. <laughs> yeah, I just like them. So most of uh, Postman painted most of his animals black, and then late, and then like outlined the lettering with white. So it just highlights that, you know, keeping them dust free. What is the most interesting anvil you've found over the years? That I know that you have a you like you like French pig anvils. I love them. I know that. Bef- I love them. Yeah. What are some of the more interesting anvils you've found over the years? Um, a couple of years ago when I was at Jimmy's, I found a mouse hole that the horn like slooped, uh, swoops down. It, it literally looks like it's, it was melted down. Right. But if, when you look at the anvil closely, it was made that way. It's crazy. Why was it made that I, way? I have yet to been able to identify why you would want to do that. It's, it's, it's really bizarre. Is that something you can ever get rid of? Uh, the right price. I don't know. I mean, listen, some things are just fun to have around because they are. Yeah. Like, I don't give that a big dollar value, but it is a really cool historical value. Like, especially if no one can figure out why, right? And you can imagine I have so many people that have so much more knowledge than I do that come in here and look at my stuff. And everyone just kind of shakes their head at that, like, what the hell is that? What's going on here? This thing is really bizarre. I, you know, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, you know, we always get, every so often I'll get somebody saying, I found this anvil in this antique store. Do you think it's worth the price? And I'll look at it and I'll say, you know, the price will be, you know, higher than I would want to pay. Like, just like, just everything about the price just seems like they're going for the jugular with the price and then the corners are fucked up. And most, I believe that most of these antique stores, they have no, have no idea of how one would sure. be used. And I start to think to, I start to get angry at the seller. But then I realize when you look at all these chipped anvils and the corners are all fucked up and there's maybe somebody used it as a torch stand or something like that. I've seen that oh, a yeah. pile of times. And I, it makes me realize that like maybe the old timers who had these 50 years, 100 years ago, 
Maybe they didn't know what the hell they were doing at all. Or maybe the amble was made poorly. But, like, once again, last episode I was talking about this Peter Wright I had that they were using the anvil to test the side of the anvil to test the hardness of the chisel. I love that. I, I mean, I don't love it. I but love I mean, it. it makes it fascinating. It's fascinating, but it is a question of, like, whether or not they respected it or not, or maybe it wasn't something to be respected anyway. I think you, I think, I think you, this possible that a more optimistic view would be more fun to explore, right? Let me, let's do that. When you look at how many times that thing was hit with a chisel, think about all the work that went into getting to that point. Think about, I would, I would assume that there's hundreds. Oh, thousands. So side. this guy's made thousands of chisels. Think about that. Like, just think about making one. You wake up, cook some eggs, whatever. You go out into your forge. You light your forge. You start, you make one chisel that day. It was hot. You're dirty as hell when you get finished. You heat treat it. You check it on the side of your anvil. It's perfect. You're done. And you did that thousands of times standing over that one anvil. To me, that's really cool. That anvil represents a shitload of really hard work. I would then look at like each one of those little marks. How deep are they? How shallow are they? How wide are they? What size was the chisel? How hard were they hitting it? Was he making punches? Are there dots all over the thing too? Most likely. I mean, yeah. to me, that's, that's so much cooler than looking at that animal going, God, what a piece of shit. Look at, the, look at what they did. They disrespected it, and they just beat it all to hell, and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, dude, not at all. That guy lived his life over that anvil making these tools probably for other people so that they could do their work. You've changed my opinion completely. You've changed my opinion completely. And now all of a sudden I realize that it's almost like this, you know, an echo, an echo from the former user. Totally. Talk, talking to me. Totally. Or talking to, it's a, it's a milestone in the life of that anvil. Totally. And it is, I'm now, I've, I'm, I never even thought about it that, that way. That gives me chills that you recognize that because now you're allowed to do the same thing with that anvil. Right. Well, certain things are certain things are. I mean, when you see people who obviously the strikers destroy the corners, that's not that's not the same. You're not going to get chills from that, right? You're not going to get chills from that. But at the same time, when Jesse told me, "Oh, yeah, they were chesting the chisels," and all of a sudden you see this visual representation of something from the history, some almost like the, the speaking to the future, totally. The speak, you know, and obviously they didn't think about it that way. They didn't say to me, they didn't say to themselves, "In a hundred years, some motherfucker is going to wonder what this was from." No, they're. But I mean, at the same time, it is the echo of humanity through this piece of steel. Yeah. That guy was just standing there doing his work. Yeah. Doing his work. And you know what? You fucking changed my opinion. At first, I was going to I was gonna make the point that, you know, these are a bunch of slappers who are, you know, just fooling around. But now no all of a sudden, it's just like this kind of neat situation. I, the history of tools are fascinating. And I just wonder... I wonder where we are going, where we're going with restoration. I know that a lot of guys, I guess, and this is something to come up with in terms of like anvils. And I, we get this a lot of knife talk and stuff like that is just the question of how should we be repairing our anvils for use? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't repair anvils because if you look at how anvils were made and then how people are trying to repair them, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's hard. Like it, it's, you would have to have a huge setup to 
repair an anvil properly. Like take the right. face of it off and put a new face on. Instead of that, people are just using like these study rods, like these hard facing rods and stuff, and then grinding it down flat. That's fine. Ultimately, I think the best thing is either to buy a brand new anvil or to find one that's in really good shape. Right. But why? So that begs the question: Why are we repairing anvils? Well, to the the idea is, is so you have a flat spot here, you have a a sharp corner here, a radius on this corner. It's so you can get some work done. Sure, but before I think, yeah, but before that, what is it like? It's because people find something that's a good deal and they know they they can fix it up, right? right. And in doing so, they fix it up. They do their interpretation of the fix, right? Based on what they have and what they totally, think they know. and that's why you see such a multiplicity of just of repairs on these little giants and stuff. Everybody's doing their interpretation of the fix. So if you save a little bit more money and buy one that's a little nicer, you don't have to do that. And I still think that there's plenty of inventory out there to live in that mindset. Definitely. You just have to go get it. But at the same time, it's like, I think that it's always interesting because sometimes, and you know this better than others, it's almost as if if you're looking for an anvil, if you're out there looking for an anvil, Sometimes you don't, maybe you, for you, it doesn't happen. But for me, it was always like when I'm out there looking for an anvil, it'll never show up. But when I just kind of put my hands up and say the anvil will find me, all of a sudden, like three of them will come my way. Totally. Like there's this, but at the same time, you you know, it's the idea of, well, I know I should be paying, you know, $1,500 for this new anvil, but I cannot afford it. And this $400, you know, beat up one might just be able to do the trick with. But at the same time, it's like it's still not really going to make it for me. It's a question of being able to figure out exactly what you need. So here's what I tell everybody. Go ahead. Buy the biggest and nicest anvil you can afford and work with that. Okay? You work with that. And you make something and you save more money. And when you have enough money to buy the next level anvil, come back to me. I'll give you exactly what you paid for the anvil that you took and you can get a nicer one. I'm going to help you out in that way. But buy the best, biggest, nicest anvil you can afford today and go get to work. And prove to yourself that you're going to do this. What do you think of new anvils today? Uh, I think they're great. I think they're great. I don't think there's enough manufacturers of them. Right. I really don't. I mean, I I can only think of four. Yeah. And they're not bad anvils. I mean, those Holland Holland anvils are great. They're great. Yeah. Oh, you must have seen them at Quad I see them. Yeah, I see them all the time. A Nimba? Nimbas are great. NC? NC? Uh, Nimbas are I'm great. Th- uh, the evolution of Nimba has changed, right? It's it, 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 They get better over time. They're closer to that pig style. Animal. Yeah. I think they're... I saw one at the Morels. Yeah. I'd never seen one before. He had two of them. I think, and then he had them in uh, their stand was uh, was a, was square tubing filled with sand. Yeah, because it has so much. In Nimba's really real. Yeah, and I felt like this is the anvil for me. Did you buy one? Like I would if I no, I don't know. The answer is no. And why not? <laughs> because I got a I got a couple I got a couple good ones from Jesse, uh-huh. and then I, a couple found my found my way to me, and uh, I don't feel the need to have a new one right, right now. Right. You know, I'm inve- I'm in- be honest with you. I'm investing in labor. I'm not investing in tools anymore. 
Really? I, 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 yeah. You know, I, this, I, I feel strongly as a, as a small business that um, my biggest weakness is productivity. Not productivity, but like execution. And I felt like I have enough tools that I know what needs to be done. And now I need to – I'd rather – put my money into supporting the American laborer. Sure. And, and not laborer, but the American worker. And sure. I have a couple people working for me and one's being very quiet right now. <laughs> hand standing, hand standing while I'm talking to Andrew Alexander. But I mean, to me, that's more valuable to my company at this point. So what does that say? What, 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 what message can you project? I'll help you. Okay. You're not the brand because when you are the brand, your business will never be as successful as it could be. When you run your business like a business, it will be more successful. Just like my business, I'm not the brand. If you think you're the brand, you've marketed it the wrong way. If you become part of the deal, like part of the, that's great, that's wonderful. But you got to let the things that you're making be the brand. That's always where I've kind of tried to go. I mean... I mean, it's weird going becoming going from being a sculptor to being a business owner. You do it does it does blur your vision in regards to your direction. Like when I'm making sculpture, it's like about me and the sculpture that I'm making and what I'm producing out of my head. Now, it's I'm really trying to do, you know, with the exception of the fact that you need social media in order in order to, to kind of create a story so people have something to latch on to. Sure. That it's not just like a nameless, you know, company that's, you know, shitting out knives. But at the same time, I do try to separate myself out from the, from the, from the work. I'm going to turn the tables on you and I'm going to start Please. asking you some questions. Give them hell. If you had to decide to today yeah. between right. being a sculptor or a bladesmith and you would never be able to do the other one that you didn't decide ever again, what would it be right. and why? That's a fucking awesome question. It's an awesome question because making sculpture to me was always very important and i still love the idea of making something that isn't necessarily useful uh, you know like a knife is a useful thing i do love the idea that i can take something like you know sculpture is my sculpture is usually just very random it's it's not random but it's like it's not like professionally detailed minute stuff there's a little bit of i allow there to be a degree of spontaneity and stuff like that the knives i really try to stay away from spontaneity and i really try to like force myself out of that it's a fucking good question it's a fucking good question if i had to do one or the other and i didn't have to worry about money no money's always part of it oh well if money's always oh see here's now the question is if it's money or no money if money isn't an object I'm making sculpture for the rest of my life. If I need to put food on the table, I'm never going to make sculpture again. I'll make knives. Because yeah. that was the whole thing. As soon as I, I was make, I was doing pretty good. I'd get a couple galleries and stuff like that. But like once I started making the knives, the phone is ringing. Yeah. You know, people can only take so many giant fishing lures. You know what sure. I mean? But it, so it's like well, those fishing lures was, you were making are really cool. They're cool, but at the same time, it's like you know I love them and they moved and. Um, there was a couple times where some galleries were pretty nasty to me about them, and they made it very much along the lines that they're just some, there's some tchotchkes and stuff like that, and I kind of took it kind of pretty poorly. So honestly. I've had bad relationships with galleries, to be honest. Yeah. With so your answer uh, lends me back it's the other money way. Money depending. Money depending. Yeah. So they, they, I go back to you can't be the brand. 
Because when you're the brand, like you're the brand when you're a sculptor. Right. Right. Exactly. And so you're yeah. selling yourself to the galleries for them to be able to let you put your work in their galleries to sell. That's right. That's this right. is Jeff Fader's fucking right. lure. Right. Right. The knife is the brand. The knife is like, oh, yeah, that is a Jeff Fader knife. But look at look at this. Look at how amazing the quality craftsmanship. And you can't, it's not to discount that your sculpture wasn't. But the art world is driven by self. Here's the interesting thing about sculpture and the knife business and the way I've tried to focus both of them. You know, one thing that a lot of people don't understand about artists are when they're taken seriously, galleries and dealers want to see the overarching history of the work. That's why if you take an art history class and they talk about Picasso, they talk about the different periods in their work, and they are able to make a comparison and see an evolution of their work. I think that what happens for me is I've taken that with the knives and you can see this ele- this evolution of where I started and where it's going. Like you can see the finger. I didn't just like start bopping around and new, you know, use, do the flavor of the week. There's some like real, even now we're working on our 2000, we're the 2023 designs and I'm going to have a very, very distinct step up, but there's going to be a relationship between the last two. I do think about, the knives more sculpturally than I probably should. I think that's cool. But at the same, well, but I mean, you got it's at the same time. It's like you know, it's you gotta you have to have some sort of thing that differentiates yourself from the stuff you can get at Walmart. Totally, no disrespect to Walmart. Yeah, and you're, everybody's design is different, right? Everybody's design is different. Uh, I mean, it's their interpretation yeah. of design. Here's right. one thing that right. I think will be interesting to, for us to explore. Go ahead. A lot of people that use forging equipment look down upon people that collect forging equipment, okay? Huh, yeah, I, th- I see that. People that are using forging equipment to make knives and things of that nature, a lot of times are selling to collectors. Yes. So they're kind of being hypocritical by saying, I don't like collectors, but ultimately their product's going to a collector. We just had somebody on Knife Talk say, I hate it when collectors buy stuff and they don't use it. Why? It drives me crazy because because they want it. This guy wants it. You know, it's just going to sit in somebody's addict. You know, it was it was the point of like you're coveting something that other some other person could use. Great. That's their prerogative. That's their money. They can do whatever they want. That's right. The collector did what they wanted. They bought what they wanted because they liked it. Show them some respect by going. That's pretty cool that they bought my thing. Yeah. You know? Don't get butthurt because, oh, so-and-so is a collector, and I know it's going to go in his desk drawer, and it'll never see the light of day again. Who gives a shit? It's a question of, of the idea of deserve it. How does freedom and deservedness equal? So, like, somebody would say, well, he has it, but he maybe he doesn't deserve it. Well, I think any— That's what it is. That's what that is. Anybody that has like, that thought process me- is, is, is jealous. They're jealous but that's, that that other person is more thing. successful. Yeah, but that happens. Haters happen all the time. A hater, if I'm a collector and I'm talking with another collector and we have a very similar collection, I'm not going to be like, that guy's a shithead because he has this, da, 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 da. No, there's going to be a mutual respect there because we're on a level playing field, okay? The reality is the people that get butt hurt wish that they had that item, Yes. right? So go get that item. 
How do you do that? You work, whatever. Stop yapping about it and put it into action on how to get it. Plan your work and work your plan. If your plan is to have a collection, plan out how to do that and go for it. Look at you. This leads me to my next question for you. Shoot, I'm ready. I'm, 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 uh, I got my seatbelt on. What? I'm ready to go. Or how do your parents describe what you do for a living? This is a good question. This is a good question because one is dead oh. and then the other one is non compass mentis. So what they did do, and my father never saw me as a knife maker. He saw me as, actually he was, when I was a, a sculptor and I was working for other artists as a welder, he, uh, he would uh, disparagingly refer to my son, the welder. Uh-huh. It was always like there was a little bit of like sting behind it. From um, him? My, like he didn't like from that? him. Yeah, yeah. It, I think that he felt that it was beneath him that my son was the welder, sure. which is just like so gross. And then my, and then I, when I worked for Charlie Palmer, he wouldn't shut up eh. to people about because he was in the restaurant business. He wouldn't shut up to people that my son worked for, you yeah. know, works for Charlie Palmer. So there was this like level of I think that now that because he was an artist and he was also a small business person. He had a winery in upstate New York. I believe that he, if he see, saw what I was doing now, he would be very proud. Sure. Because I think that he is a cook too. I think that he would have loved the fact that I was making knives, and then I think he would have really dug the handle colors that I would have that I was do that I'm doing now. I think that he would have, even though that he was a little bit dismissive towards the things that I was doing. I think that if he saw me now, I, in my heart of hearts, and we didn't speak, see eye to eye on a lot of things, I think he would have been pretty proud of what I'm doing now. Did- my mother is always proud, sure. but she's maniac. So it's like you know, I, I got not the I got the wrong parents for the I got the wrong parents for this scenario. No, I uh, well, uh, well, how would your parents feel about what 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 you what you what you? Oh, doing? my parents think I'm crazy, hundred percent. That's it. No, I mean they don't understand at all. They don't understand that there's somebody that is chasing their passion, right? That loves it right. and is successful doing it. I grew up in a home where. You did what your parents told you to do because that's what they told you to do. And my parents right. are amazing people. They're great people. And I love them. We have a wonderful relationship, but we have nothing in common. Zero. My dad is a global net worth money manager. He works for the Rockefellers. He is extremely successful, right? I haven't taken a dollar from my dad in over 25 years. I, I, det- I was determined to make my own way, and I have, Right. And I think because of that, he's very proud of me. And he loves right. what I'm doing, but he has no clue what that actually is. <laughs> yeah. You know. Uh, that's understandable. But, I mean, he sees what you're doing. He sees the vastness of what you're doing. Sure. And it's just like it's not nothing. It's not like sitting on your couch and hoping, like, a uh, wrench shows up. No, no, no. He's very – he's very uh, – uh, he he approves. My mom approves. They're great people. The, it's interesting because a lot of creative people are – doing things for some degree of validation it's it's usually from the parents sure. it's usually from the parents it's taken me it's taken me 40 some odd years to realize that if my dad saw what i was doing now he'd be pretty pumped like he would tell his friends and is that why you choose my... like the color of the knife handles that you choose as inspiration from him well i grew up in a household full of my dad was an excellent painter and sculptor and my sisters were both sculptors and painters and um be honest with you, the, a lot of the colors came from um, 
I mean, our, a lot of okay, because of the lures. The, when I was making the lures, mm-hmm. you know, the idea. I mean, I never was interested in color before, until I started to deal with the idea of when I first started making lures. It was for a class where we had to take something small and make it big, and then we were like, you know, you look at lures and they're meant to attract fish and stuff like that. So I really like the idea of contrasting colors, and that's what really kind of got me into color in general. Um, so like the color probably did. My dad was like a muted green hunter green. Sure. Like, I mean, he was like classic, you know, his paintings were not highly colored. There was like muted colors. So, um, I think he would have appreciated when, you know, when I, when we talk about art and he and I would talk about art, I think he would appreciate my take on decision-making. But other than that, like it wasn't really, I mean, he didn't do crazy color or anything. Yeah. If I was to offer you a billboard free of charge, put it anywhere in the world you want it to be, what would it say? Um, that's a good question because, like, being someone who's a little bit like, I don't like to do what people tell me to do, it probably wouldn't say anything. It would probably be a painting, to be honest. Really? I think that a lot of times I would probably try to, just thinking off the cuff, I would probably do just a giant painting. Of what? I don't know. A boob or something? Maybe nothing. Well, I mean, that's the my game plan in the next 20 years is I want to get back into painting big. Like, I really want to get into doing... Like murals? Like uh, building have, murals? Not necessarily murals, but I really want to get into large-scale painting. I did a few large-scale paintings that I just loved, and I set up my kitchen, and we I was painting in the dining room, and my kids loved... My kid loved it. My wife loved me sitting by the table with this giant yeah. painting in the kitchen, and... I kind of want to get back to that, uh, especially as I get older and you know things start falling off. I want to, I want to get back. I want to get back into painting. I'm so, so envious of that that talent because I don't well, have I'm not it. Good at it. What does it matter if you're good at it? If you can do it, I have bullshit. Look at that. I have one of your deals right here on my desk. Oh, I yeah, think it's great. That, that, that was that was the turnstile friction. Yeah, that was the watercolor. I mean, that's a nod to my dad. He taught me how to watercolor. So like that was a that was a, a nod to him. But I really wanted to do. I want to do big big colorful oil painting oh, i like that like that would be to me like in my mind I, you know we talk about it when i talk what's your ultimate shop and i always i have i know exactly it'd be a big room with uh white cinder block walls with 20 foot ceilings and then i had a island table with paints and paintbrushes, and then i had like two four i had six paintings going on at the same time all the way around oh, cool and then i was working oh yeah paint all of the floors and that to me is like if i could do that today i would love to do you, that. you know the most artistic thing i've done with paint which i'm not a painter of no I've, i'm not an artist by any means but i saw that deal on youtube where you tie like a string around a paint oh, yeah. can and then my kids yeah my kids had they got so into it it was so much fun and it looked cool that at the is, end that is a fascinating process. Oh, I just thought it was I mean, fun. Yeah. Did, did, it it looked look? amazing. I thought they did great. Like, who, who would have thought that, like, just swinging a paint game with a hole in it could create, like, this imagery of, like, uh, these flowing lines that were actually very simple, but they graduated up and around and back. It was just really cool. Back to the billboard question. I also don't think I'd want to say anything. To, I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd want to tell anybody anything. Like, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't believe in inspirational quotes. And I don't believe in like, I think that sometimes they're, they're I, I think a lot of times when people 
put an inspirational quote on there, trying to tie themselves into someone else's genius, which is totally insufferable to, to me. I think it's I think it's exactly when somebody puts up an inspirational quote, they're trying to make people think that they have some sort of connection, and then it's almost as if they've said the inspirational quote. So I probably wouldn't be able to say. I don't think I would be able to say anything. What would well, you put on? It's your marketing, quote? though. It's marketing. It is marketing. Do you believe in inspiration? Well, inspiration's fascinating because I think that there's this strange there's a strange disconnect to what inspiration is. A lot of especially in the knife making world, they use the word I was inspired by. And that usually means I've kind of taken an idea from. Like this idea was taken from. Inspiration is really like a thing that gets you excited to be on your own journey. So I do believe, like I remember going to, we would go to the MoMA and we'd look at some of the classic pieces. Or I love uh, Brancusi is my favorite sculptor. Alexander Calder is one of my favorite sculptors. I look at their work and it gets me fired up to work. Yeah, That's inspiration. But like seeing a painting of an apple and say, I'm inspired to make a painting of an apple. That's not inspiration. That's just kind of like, that's not your own personal growth. Sure. But inspiration can be different things too. Like, I think through me talking about the chisel marks on the side of the Peter Wright, you were inspired to change your thoughts on that. You definitely cr- changed my thoughts in a way that I'm embarrassed that I thought that way before. Um, I mean, whatever, but it's it, it was an inspirational change. So what would you put on your billboard? I think I would just I, – I love simplicity in marketing, right? And I, if a billboard is used as an advertisement piece – and ultimately, I would want to direct people to, you know, a website or something of that nature that would allow them to see exactly what I was doing, Instagram or whatever. See, you know what? Once again, when you said you have a billboard, you can put it anything up. I never even thought of it being for business. Well, yeah, that's like in my mind, I'm thinking of it being just like this creative expression. Right. So that I think that's sometimes the downfall of an artist is they yeah. they that's why I have a business they ignore the business side of the equation. That's why I got a business sure, partner sure. because he knows that I'm going to. Yeah, he's going to be listening to this going, Jeff, Jesus Christ, dude. Advertisement. Put our website up there. WWW, you know. Guess what he's not going to be doing is listening to this sure, podcast. Sure, sure. He's here you enough, know, probably, yeah. Is he here? He's like, I know exactly. I know what you're going to say before you even say it. I don't, even, yeah. I don't need to know. Yeah. Do you have any more of these scintillating questions? I want to talk about your right? tattoos. Go ahead. What What is this tattoo thing? Because uh, let me just say this. But mine personally? Yeah, of course. I have okay. no tattoos. Okay. But I, lo- I like tattoos. I think they're yeah. really cool. I find myself being indecisive on what kind of tattoo I would get. And then I also think if I got one, I would get 100. And then I realize I'm 43 years old, and maybe I'm not going to get any tattoos. Right. So I'm just curious, like what? Because you get get them all the time, right? Or not all the time, but you get them frequently. Not anymore. Oh, you don't? I hate it. I hate. Well, not any, why? I wanted to tattoo when I was a kid, like really young. Yeah. You know, I grew up watching MTV, and you see all these rock stars wearing. Before it was very popular, they would they were like it was awesome. And then I remember Popeye had a tattoo. You know, and and I just like I like the idea of having something permanent, and I also like the idea of you having some type of decision-making process. And then I came up with an idea. My And my mother used to get me fake tattoos, and I wear them all the time. And then when I got to be the age where I'm getting one, I found a, the first one, I sat with the idea for probably a year. And then at the end of the year, I said to myself, if I still want to get it, you should get it. 
So I got it. I was terrified. My dad was furious with mm -hmm. me. Uh, my mother was furious. And then I just was like, let's just keep going. And then what I liked personally, like in the beginning, you get a tattoo and it's like it means something. And then the older I got, the more I was interested in just like, why not do something, have a little bit of spontaneity, why don't you just fill some spaces up? I liked, I also saw each tattoo as kind of like the chisel marks on the anvil. It was a mark of the person that you were at that time. It was a milestone of that time. Sure. And then I started to look at it like, you know, those old suitcases where that have different uh, countries on them, and it's just all the places that you've been. So I always see them as a, a milestone in your life. Um, and then I like the color, and there's some of them I'm not crazy about, but at the same time I don't regret yeah. them. Um, I'm now at the point now where my friend owns a tattoo parlor. I've been getting tattoos from him for, you know, 15 years, and we're both two of the oldest people in there, which is annoying. There's nothing worse than being around a bunch of uh, millennials tattooing people yeah. because they are insufferable too. Uh, so I don't enjoy getting tattooed. I have friends who are tattoo artists that I help get, like the guy who did my logo. His, he's now a huge tattoo artist, and I helped him get an uh, apprenticeship. And he actually gave me one of his first tattoos ever. Now he's tattooing, you know, Steve Lacey and all these famous guys and stuff like that. So there is some, there is, it's fun, but at the same time, it's like I don't like look forward to it anymore. Yeah, I, it it doesn't feel good. And it's kind of a pain in the ass, and it's enough already. Yeah. So that's how I feel. Yeah. But I don't regret it. Yeah, I, I, it's I have, a very interesting process. I, I, I just don't have the balls to do it. It's, it's a very, it's interesting because it is very self-destructive, and it is body modification is a self-destructive act, but your your mind kind of takes away that part of it and then tries to put the po the positivity on it. I have control over the who the person I am. You think it's self-destructive to tattoo? Uh, completely self-destructive. Really? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, cause you're, you're, you're adding something that wasn't there to begin with. You know, you're changing who you are. You're trying to make people think of who you are is different than you are. I mean, I, and I'm not, I mean, I'm very well aware of this. And I have no problem with it. But if you strip it down to the bare minimum, it is self-destructive. Oh, I don't agree with that at all. I think some people I do mean, it because it's beautiful and it's art, and they think it enhances their look. Definitely, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's. But I, I'm not saying self-destructive is the worst thing in the world. I'm just saying that there is this self-destructive quality to it that is, you know, it is the case. Yeah. I also, I also buck the system. And the funny thing is, I was talking to somebody about it. Um, Tribal tattoos are like, you know, they're so passe now. And, um, but I talk, when you talk to, uh, tattoo guys, they'll say if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the tribal tattoo, we wouldn't have been able to keep our lights on. Oh, wow. The tribal tattoos. So, so like, if you have a tribal tattoo, thank you, you should be, you should be, th they should thank you for your service because you kept a lot of these places in business. Yeah. I, I, I want to just like, if I was going to be able to make it to makers camp, like get four or five guys together and your tattoo artist buddy, and just like catch Jimmy and hold him down and tattoo him somewhere. See, I think that Jimmy's waiting for someone to have him. I'm sure that there are people who have gotten his signature, or there. I know that there has to be guys who have gotten the Duresta spray paint. Oh, for know, sure, done on for sure. I, I'll tell you something funny: is a lot of knife guys they get to a certain degree, and I know about six or seven of them who people get tattoos of their knives. Yeah. 
I've gotten tat- I've gotten people get tattoos of my knives, and one of them was so bad, I wanted to write to the guy. I said, "You should have let me draw it." It was awful. And I know other people are just like, "Should I be proud of this? Should I be embarrassed?" And I'm like, "No, you know, it's just the way it is. I mean, people just do it." And some people get, ta- I mean, my friend Tomer Botner's Florentine Kitchen Knives, the people who get Florentine Kitchen Knives tattoos are like the highest level. They're the, so beautiful. It's just like kind of shocking. But uh, it is funny when you get to the point where you're a knife maker and people make your knife as a I tattoo. I think that's cool. Yeah. It's Whether it's cool. good or not it's super good. Cool. It's, people are, what they're saying is they love what you're doing so much. They want to, you know, have it signify the rest of their life. I got a customer of mine who got a giant tattoo of the Statue of Liberty where the face was Marilyn Monroe, and instead of the torch, she was holding my That's head. cool. That was is so cool. cool. It was so it was crazy. It was like you were like, look what I got. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. You're a maniac. There's so many got people the in this community that, that get the craziest, coolest tattoos. Yeah. I see it all the time. I love it, especially the chicks. I think it's cool. I think it's hot when they do it. I see a lot of guys with, with – Power Hammer, I know Pat Quinn and, and all these guys, they got like post-vice tattoos, and anvil tattoos. Yeah. I got an anvil tattoo. I got a, I have a, my, somebody tattooed my, uh, my hey buddy. Yeah. And they did, uh, they did a tattoo. I like anvil On tattoos. you or on to, them? On me. On you, okay, yeah. On me. I, I think a lot of people, it's funny because um, somebody wrote in a knife talk and say, at what point do you, ha- are you truly a blacksmith if you have an anvil tattoo, do you have to have an anvil tattoo to be a blacksmith? Hell yeah. Funny because there are a lot, there's a lot of guys and gals who do get anvil tattoos and it is something like you're uh, you are marking the person that you are and there's something that you identify with. Yeah. So. I think it's great. But like when I look at you, you, you don't see any tattoos on you. You don't see them on your face or your hands. Yeah. What are they starting your sleeves? Right. Yeah. Just my arms. Yeah. Nothing really below the wrist. I'm, I'm kind of like old. School you don't have like your butthole tattooed, like an eyeball or something. No. No, no, no. Somebody asked, Mareko asked me if I, my butt was tattooed. I'm like, no, my butt is not tattooed. I don't, I don't want to, I mean, you know, it is a vanity thing. I mean, I'm not going to, I never understood when people get tattoos where they can't see them themselves. Yeah. Like, I like to be able to kind of see where they're going. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm, I think I'm pretty, I might get a couple more just because I want to hang out with a couple tattoo buddy sure. friends of mine. But I'm like, and I'm actually, for my kid's birthday, I already lined up a tattoo. She's going to get a tattoo on her 18th birthday, and I already lined it up with this friend of mine who's done, like, these famous guys. So that's, you know, she's been wanting it forever, and I'm just like, all right, happy birthday. If you're going to get one, I'm going to get the – I'm going to be the guy to help you. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. But – Okay, so what what do you do outside of the three Fs, forging, family, and food? What are your hobbies? Oh, boy, that's a good one. That's a good one. I mean – podcasting for me has been something that I've wanted to do my whole life. Like sure. I've, I grew up, you know, as a latchkey kid, I've said it a million times and I was alone all the time. A latchkey kid is your mom, your mother's gone, your father's gone and you're in an apartment by yourself. And I needed to hear people's No voices. other siblings. No, oh, you have I, I have two half sisters. Yeah. I have two half sisters, but they grew up in a different family sure. and they, they were, by the time I was born, they were already out of the house. But I was alone, yeah. and you need, and and I didn't have a TV, and I felt the need to. I needed company, so I would listen to talk radio, and I I felt that this I wasn't afraid. It was like I had a companion, 
and throughout some times, actually last week I had something happen with my mother that was really kind of like very, very difficult. We're going through some difficult points in her, you know, the, the next part sure. of her life, which is very, you know, and I was in a bad way and I was like, I need to laugh. I need to be, not feel like I'm alone. I, I said, I got to listen to Howard Stern and Howard Stern was interviewing someone. He was talking about something stupid or whatever. And, and it just, it, it was like almost like a Pavlov's dog where I immediately started feeling not alone. Mm. So I've, and I, with this podcast too, and knife talk, I get a lot of messages from guys who are really on the brink. And I do feel this very strong in the importance of doing it. So podcasting for me is something that I've always loved. I've always, I feel very strongly about it. I've taken it very seriously. I would think that podcasting is the four is the, that's like thing. your golf. Or tennis, or whatever a hobby may be, shooting I'm, or hunting. Well, I mean, I used to love I used to love fishing, and I'm starting to not fish anymore. Really, what's driving like, that? I don't know. The catch and release thing is weird to me. Like, I don't eat as much meat. I eat, when I eat meat, I, it's very. I feel very. I feel very very important that it's. If this animal is going to die, the I better fucking do a good job. Sure. Like, I don't take I don't take life. I don't take life uh, frivolously. So I love fishing. I love fishing. I loved it. I mean, it was, but at the same time, the catch and release thing, it's like, it seems very unnecessary. It's pointless. It's truly pointless. It seems a degree of cruelty. cruelty. Yeah. Because these these fish that you end up putting back, some of them, most of them don't make it. Yeah. Catch and release is. And I, so it's like, to me, it was like, it got to the point where I made the decision and I watched this video, this fish is struggling and i'm just like this fucking fish doesn't want to be right here. i want to be on this fucking hook for you to take a picture and then put them back yeah it's like i don't need it in my life anymore now i'm not a vegetarian i mean i had you know i eat chicken i eat this stuff but i take i take meat eating very very i i, I take it very solemnly in terms of um do i you know i take it very it's important sure. like if you're going to do it i think to understand where these things come from and then just try to be as ethical as absolutely you can. Absolutely. So that's that, and then I don't know what else. I like to paint. I love. Yeah, painting paint. sounds cool. I have a couple. I have a couple lures in the house that I've started a while ago, and then I look at, and then I get excited to get back into them. So I do sculpture and painting. Is when I was a kid, I literally used to sit and watch Bob Ross paint those clouds. K E R E Channel Thirteen. Bob Ross. I mean, it was awesome. My dad, who was a a very good painter and he was a, he was a, he was classically trained he hated bob ross and he told me this guy is going to ruin painting for a generation and he says because you're creating gimmicks all those little the different palette knife and then you move it like this and you do this and then this is how you make a tree this is, he's like it is ruining the, it's almost like legos yeah. legos used to be you buy a box of legos and you fuck around now legos are it's like a puzzle sure. And what he said was, was the Bob Ross has uh, uh, minimized the creative process, and he's making these fucking people learn how to do this one thing. And it's like he hated it. He said, I don't want you watching Bob Ross when I was really young. I'm like, why? What's so wrong about this guy's paintings? He's like, no, 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 no. He's training you how to do it wrong. Yeah, I, the way that I look at that is, is uh, different. Again, more yeah. of the optimism side of me. Like yeah. Bob Ross – doing those educational videos is YouTube. And ultimately yes. how you interpret or put that into play is your own thing. Like I, Bob Ross is not going to teach me how to be a good painter because I don't know how to paint shit. Okay. Right. I just enjoyed 
the show and how he talked and his fluffy hair permanent. And, you know, yeah, yeah. like it was as a kid, after you watched um, uh, The Wonder Years over and over and over, you know, you watched Bob Ross. It was just. Yeah. I, I definitely remember, you know, that soothing. Oh, yeah. The, but at the same time, my dad walked in on me watching Bob Ross. It was as if I was watching pornography. Totally. He was furious. He was just like, what the fuck are you doing yeah, in here with that goddamn thing? Turn that off. How dare you? You're an embarrassment. Yeah. You know, but so. ultimately, he's doing a a cool thing. So I'm going to bring it back sure. to you. So what do you do without the three Fs? Uh, dude, so for me, family's the biggest. But outside of family, yeah. outside of work, outside of all that, I love spearfishing. I've, uh, yeah, Whoa. I've done. I've loved spearfishing. I've done I don't know how many trips over the last 10 years, just probably hundreds. I love it. I love the the challenge of it. I love to go and catch what you're going to eat. You know, I'm also yeah. a classically trained chef, so there is a, a fun aspect behind harvesting actual fresh fish versus yeah. getting something flown in one day, whatever. I don't believe in any of that. I've been all over the world, you know, spearfishing, and to me, that is, like, the most fun. You are so vulnerable in that ocean, free diving with no air except for the breath in your body and that spear gun in your hand or the pole spear in your hand – you you're you, you know that whole fish out of water saying like you throw a yeah. shark on the sandy beach and watch it flail around that's what's happening with you in the water right, right. so if you fuck up or you make a mad a bad decision it's over buddy how what's the how long can you hold your breath uh, that's interesting it de- it just really depends on what's happening Ultimately, if you can go down and just be real calm and wait for a fish, that's the best. But sometimes I, I get, you know, I'm kind of a spaz and I'll be like, I got to go chase this fish. Or I, I'm going to outsmart this fish. Like I'm going to go around this piece of coral and he's going to go that way and I'm going to get a shot. Not always true, but when you do that, you run out of breath a lot faster, right? So what, so what's the most fun you've had? Tell me, tell me a, a spearfishing story. Let's finish this with a spearfishing story. I was story. in Harbor Island, Bahamas about five years ago, fishing with a good friend of mine, and we were kind of having a day off from taking the boats out. We decided that from our hotel room, we were staying at the, uh, uh, it's a pink sand beach, and I, okay. I, I forget the name of the hotel, but we're looking out of our hotel, and we could see right. coral reef just you know, a little ways out. And the hotel had these kayaks. So we were like, all right, let's both get a kayak, get a rope, take our gear, and we'll go out to these coral reefs and, you know, harvest some fish and co- go cook them up. So we go out, we get past the break, you know, and whatever the, the, the waves, and we get out a little ways, and we jump in, and we're shooting some fish, and he shoots a grouper, and as he's going back to his kayak... This fucking shark literally goes over the top of him in between me and him in the kayak and takes his fish and hauls ass. And I was like, that's the scary. I literally saw the teeth of this shark. Like, what did you do? I levitated out of the water. You know, in the Bible, they talk about this man walking on water. I know how that man walked on water. There were sharks in that water, son. And I was so freaked out. I was like paddling as fast as I could back to the shore. I'm like, oh, my God, that was the craziest. He's paddling back. We left stuff out there floating and shit. 
And then when we got back to shore, we realized, hey, it's really, it's okay. Like, go back and get our stuff. <laughs> like, just chill out a little bit. But sharks in the water freak me out, dude. Freak of course. I, I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. I did, I, so, I'll, I'll tell you another story. I did a, about three years ago, we went off the coast of Louisiana, 80 okay. miles, to get behind some shrimp boats that were trawling. As these shrimp boats go across the water, trawling, everything in the ocean is following these nets, picking up whatever, you know, shrimp and all the things that are kind of coming off these nets as they're pulling them up to right. the boat. So what you do is you trawl, you, you, you go right up to behind the boats that are trawling, and you'll throw the, uh, the people that are working on that boat like a 12-pack of beer or something, and they'll give you these right. big bags of chum. So as that boat is slowly trawling away, you start chumming the water where they are. And as they trawl away and you're chumming, the fish that were following the boat stay where you are because you're chumming the water very heavily. So at that point, and we were, we were going for tuna. Right. I, again, a spaz and very enthusiastic and ready to get in the water. And there was four of us that were going in the water. I had a guy that was filming me and then there were three other guys. And they were like, go ahead and go. And I, I, everybody was like getting their gear on, but I had already got my gear on and I'm ready. And I jump in the water. And I am dumbfounded at what I see. There was at least 200 sharks. 200. I have pictures of it, videos of it. I literally shit my, my pants. Like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. 200 sharks. In Louisiana. In, off the coast of Louisiana. Yeah, I was sending you pictures. Crazy. And I, like, get out and try to get back in the boat. They're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm like, dude, there are more sharks in this water than I've ever seen in my entire life. And they all start laughing, and they're putting these things around their ankles, that, like these little tentacle-type things. I go, what are y'all doing? Oh, these are shark shields. They put an electromagnetic field around your body six feet so that sharks don't bother you. And I'm like, no one cared to tell me that I should get one of those things? That really has – that's Yeah, a that's thing? a thing. Shark yeah, shields? Yeah, it's just a, like, this is like a, a tentacle-type thing that puts this electromagnetic field around your body, and the sharks don't bother you. But ultimately, the sharks don't really bother you. And I, this is really crazy for you to hear probably, and it's crazy for me to say, but to get the tuna, you have to swim below the sharks, okay? So as you swim down, you bump into these sharks. They bump into you. But if you don't show aggression to them, I'm told they don't show aggression to you. Now, I do have a video where this one kind of mid-sized shark would not leave me alone, and so I kind of bump him with my spear, and that was a stupid oh, idea. Fuck's it was sake. a stupid idea because then it wanted me, you know. It would not leave so me. We just got out and relocated to a different boat, to a different, you know, shrimp boat. But yeah, don't yeah, don't show aggression to them. But I mean, if you see all these sharks and you're going for the tuna and you shoot the tuna, isn't that going to make the sharks totally. want to attack yeah. the it's, tuna? Yeah, it, then it's a fifty-fifty chance whether you get the whole fish back and not. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! It's interesting. Spear fishing. You got any big spear fishing trips coming um, up? Um, I don't have one planned right now, but I will. I will. It, it's, I love it, dude. It's so quiet and peaceful. As soon as you think about it, go into the water. You don't hear anything. No one can. If someone's trying to say something to you, it's like, you know, yeah, you don't know what they're yeah, saying. Yeah. So you're kind of on your own. What's the best fish you've ever shot? Uh, or your favorite? I, I love that rock grouper. Uh, and then there's one fish that eats 
I, I forget the name of it, but um, it's not an oh no. I forget the name of it, but it it, it eats all it eats is shrimp, and so it tastes like shrimp, but it's a it's a, a flaky fish. Wow, and it's so good. It's got like a little mohawk type thing. I'll 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 have to remember the name of that one. Have you had those lionfish? Those no, lion no, I, I've shot several of them. They're amazing. Really? So lionfish, they are, are a pest. Totally. And they're they're very invasive. Yep. They have like long uh, fins and they have spikes and you know they're very invasive. And somebody figured out that if you cook them, they taste great. And actually, we had my the chef in this neighborhood here had. Had it on the menu. He had lionfish tails. Interesting. They were unbelievable. Really? They were unbelievable. I couldn't believe how good it was. But then I started to think maybe it's like tilapia, where it's like a garbage bullshit. But it was. But they're great. very poisonous. You know, the lionfish. Like game, if you don't harvest, if you don't well, the, fillet them properly. Yeah, I think they go for the tails. I think you have to get just their yeah. tails. And I think that they figured out a way to get the tails. But a lionfish, I would imagine that like that'd be like people like bash them over the head. They they want to get rid of these lionfish so yeah. bad. You know another thing that What's like ne- really oh, ahead, really sorry. drives me is is culinary satisfaction. I strive for culinary satisfaction every day. Not me producing it, but me receiving it. Okay? And that is a really hard thing to achieve daily because not every place is good that you're going to go to. Right. So ultimately, I find myself cooking to achieve culinary satisfaction more than I do just eating because I'm out somewhere. I tell you, culinary satisfaction is I've always cooked for my family. My wife doesn't cook at all. I spend, I, there's nothing to me more enjoyable than making something that my family loves to totally. eat. Totally. Like they've been with me for so long, they're still not sick of totally. my food. To the point where my kid wrote, a, uh, wrote her college essay, and it's about food, and it's about how I cook for her in good times and bad times. And during coronavirus, it was like food was like this really going to be important thing with us because we had a real problem with when my wife got the first wave it was really bad shape and the joke has always been my daughter's been mad at me before real mad at me no matter how mad she gets if i offer to make her something nice she'll never say really and that's the ultimate satisfaction like no matter how mad she is at me if I say, "Hey, I'm making," will you want me to make a nice sandwich? She'll always say yes. What is some, what does she get She's mad at you? Furious with me? Oh, anything. You know, if I didn't like some, if I or I made some off-color joke about one of her friends, or if I say something that's just like, you know, you don't have you don't have. I know I don't. So you know, like, so like, there's some like, there's some moments of that you know normal you know uh, jocularity that doesn't sure. cross over to a seventeen year old. Yeah, like sh- you so, think like, it's hilarious, and she's know, like, "Fuck you, dude." Well, there's there's moments of like disagreements, and you know I'm not backing down, and she's not backing down, and just getting worse and worse and worse, and then it just gets awkward. And but then I can get to that level of furiousness, and then offer to make her a sandwich, and then all of a sudden everything's, everything's good. good. So to me, that's culinary satisfaction. That's cool. Like, that trumps. It yeah, all. because your so. sandwich isn't going to be just peanut butter jelly on white bread. It's going to be like this toasted brioche with this unbelievable salmon on it, and you know the whole bit. Well, it's going to be it's going to be delicious, yeah. and so so she knows she equates my food with deliciousness, and she's been over to other people's houses, and she'll tell me, well, their food isn't as good as yours. So there's this loyalty sure. thing too, and to me, that's the, been the best. What's next for? Andrew Alexander. T- I'm about to take about a week and a half off and go to old Mexico. I was actually uh, Googling last night trying to find 
some cool places to visit in Mexico, although I know that may not be the smartest thing for me to do, but I want to go explore Mexico like I do the United States, right? So we're going to be in Cabo, which, you know, is incredibly touristy, but I'm sure that somewhere around there, I'm going to network and try to find, you know, some cool shop to go visit that's in that area. Yeah, it'll be exciting. exciting. That's gonna be cool. I may need to take some it's, some support with me. Oh yeah, what if you find something you have to have? Oh, I'll get it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Andrew Alexander, ladies and gentlemen, Blacksmith Tools on Instagram. Thank you, thank you, thank you for redoing this. I feel like I've, I've. Oh, thanks to you, we redeemed last episode, which was still good, but this is better. Thank you, thank yeah, you, man. thank you. And I once again apologize for last week. We'll definitely do this again. Andrew Alexander, ladies and gentlemen, Blacksmith Tools on Instagram. He's the man. And uh, we will see you next week. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks All again, right, brother. Andrew. Thank you. See ya. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Makers.